not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tucker Down. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And this is a podcast where we talk about Ted Kaczynski superfan Tucker Carlson. Ted Kaczynski superfan. Do we have to talk about the Unabomber today? Is that Shockingly, yes, we do. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm honestly pretty excited for this week's episode. <laughs> okay, cool. Awesome. Um, so Troy and I have to have to talk about something. Uh, we have a new patron to thank. And um, they joined at the highest tier. And we talked about renaming the highest tier because we didn't want to people to think that we're like John Stewart super fans or anything. So we've renamed the John Stewart tier. Um, and uh, this newest patron has also um, created new, new uh, art for us, for our logo and all that. Very generously. You may have noticed uh, that this, this new patron of ours made us some new art and I'm fucking thrilled with it. With all of that said, um, Pendleton Ward is uh, has joined at our highest tier, which has been dubbed uh, Eminem Fetish Fan Artist. So thank you, Pendleton Ward, um, for your Eminem Fetish Fan Artistry and for your Tuckered Out uh, podcast art and for uh, joining the Patreon and for uh, being here with us. We love you. Thank you so much, Pendleton Ward. And I'm sorry that this had to be the very week that we renamed it to Eminem Fetish Fan Artist. <laughs> <laughs> we say we but that was 100% me so <laughs> Tyler can be relieved of that guilt <laughs> oh but uh but yeah so so that's cool uh yeah so thank you to Pendleton and thank you uh to all of our patrons who uh who support us every month um we love all of you and to be fair Pendleton um the, the name was suggested by another of our listeners named Jeff so if you're upset about it take it up with Jeff on the Wokeristas page yeah it's Jeff's fault yeah so with that out of the way let's um, talk about the unabomber let's talk about the goddamn unabomber (laughs) um it's gonna take us a minute to get there (laughs) i I thought so but you know we gotta we gotta segue somehow so tyler we've got an interesting episode to go over this week um so something that has come up a few times on our show is that Tucker has an interest in architecture. And every time this has come up, I've gotten emails um, pointing out that there, there are some like fascist undertones with the way that Tucker often discusses architectural concepts. And okay. I, I, kind of, I pretty much left it alone because I didn't understand it. I don't know shit about architecture. And, um, and, and it, it seemed kind of like, reachy to me i was like really how can how can the way a building is designed to be fascist um but i it it came up in that americano interview that we went over last week and i didn't play the clip because i knew that i was going to be doing this episode by then but um it, it came up that tucker has had accusations lobbed against him when he talks about architecture it piqued my interest and so i looked into this a bit more and I want to give a huge thank you to our listener, Alyssa, who um, 
she has some knowledge in this area and she was able to point you towards some really good resources for digging into this and getting an understanding of what's going on. So thank you very much, Alyssa. You're an honorary Eminem fetish fan artist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would say I know pretty little about architecture as well. I said that brutalism was not a, uh, like a main fixture of American architecture. And I think we got like several emails that was like, no, there is a whole bunch of brutalist architecture in America actually. And here are examples. (laughs) Um, So, so, you know, this is something that uh, people in our audience feel very passionately about for some reason. I don't know. I I say dumb (laughs) shit all the time. (laughs) So yeah, I, I don't think I have authority to, to speak on fascist architecture either, but I, I don't know. I have moved past, I remember being in high school and being really mad that we had to um, analyze like what the author is trying to say about the world through their, through their novel. Come Cause 19 or like 17 year old me was just like, maybe they just wanted to write an interesting story. Maybe it doesn't have to have some meaning. And also I was forced to do this for the great Gatsby, which is like the most boring book to analyze ever. So, um, so I, I feel like it was a bad time, but I have grown out of that. And I, I firmly believe that people want their ideology to be represented in their art. So I don't see why that wouldn't uh, extend to fascists and architects and architects, I should say. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I've been kind of pulling together strands of this episode for a bit. Um, I figured it was something we could do as like a mini episode or something. And then as I was, literally, as I was mostly done putting what was going to be this mini episode together, um, a new episode of Tucker Carlson Today dropped, titled Ugly America, where Tucker had on a guest named James Howard Kunstler. And uh, That's his real name? It it, it is. We don't need to dwell on it. (laughs) Okay. All right. And that interview was ostensibly about why American cities are ugly. It wasn't actually about that, which we'll see as we go through this. Um, But then that sent me down some other rabbit holes, and this ended up being uh, not much of a mini episode. So it's what we're going to talk about today. And a couple of things, a couple of things I want to clarify up front. I want to be very straightforward that having an interest in classical architecture is not always or even usually a fascist dog whistle. Um, you, you, Tucker you, found a way. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, like you, you, you can like classical architecture and have any range of politics. It doesn't say anything more about you than that you like a certain architectural style. However, there is a pretty well documented phenomenon of fascists and white supremacists appropriating. Uh, an, an appreciation for classical architecture um, to further narratives surrounding uh, Western ch- chauvinism and white supremacy. Um, okay. And so that's some of the stuff we're going to be getting into today. And, and also we're going to be a little bit loose with terms. Like there is a distinction between modern architecture and postmodern architecture that we're going to completely ignore for our purposes here. Um, (laughs) and when we talk about classical architecture we're going to be lumping in a lot of things like uh, gothic and renaissance art and like just there's a lot of nuance here that 
isn't necessary for the points we're going to be making and that the people we're going to be talking about don't engage in either. Um, okay. So if this is an interest of yours, I, I know that some of my terminology is going to be clunky and I'm sorry. And you can email me about it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> they will. They didn't need an invitation. So yeah, with that out of the way, let's jump into this and to start with, Oh, and I do have Tyler two questions of the week for you today. Oh no. Um, one is a bit more straightforward, and the other is personal for us. So here's the first one. But it seems like the people in charge of that orgy, and they're the same ones in charge of our country, don't, or maybe they do, they don't seem to understand that their era is ending, that it's unsustainable, that hasn't actually improved people's lives. I mean, they're full speed ahead with colonizing Mars. Why is that? Um... It's okay if you need to break the question down. Why are the orgy people who are on their who are planning to colonize Mars? Wait, why are they what? Uh, why don't they realize that their era is ending? Oh. When did the orgy Martian era begin? Did I miss? <laughs> <laughs> you, you reject the premise is what I'm getting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it, it hasn't started. I'm just saying I'm not aware that it started. And then this one, uh, this one you might be able to answer because this is going to affect us pretty, pretty directly. What happens when like Grand Rapids becomes a real place again? Oh, no. It's been a couple years since I drove to Grand Rapids. But like, is is it gone? Did someone take it? Yeah, Tyler, I I have bad news. I might not be here right now. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um... okay. So, theme for this show today is figure out why these orgy Martians haven't fi- realized that they have lost their grasp on society and. I presume they're connected. So, like, are they... They are in charge of making Grand Rapids a real place again? The Orgy Martians? I hope so. I mean, that could only be a, a net positive for for Grand Rapids. Like, it's a great place, but, like, imagine what Orgy Martians could do for Grand Rapids. Yeah, like, I mean, I, 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 I love Grand Rapids. Something I will say, it could use more orgies. <laughs> 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 so then... Let's get into the the the, the meat on this guy. Um, to start off with, here's kind of what set me down this road. Um, this was at the end of that Americano interview after Tucker has explained that he hates drywall. I, I really believe in natural building materials. Aesthetics are really important to me. Nature is really important to me. And so I'm just not going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm never going to stay in like a, ho- in a hotel room if I can help it. I don't I don't want to. So. I understand I'm, afraid, I'm afraid to tell you, Tucker, as you probably know, that is your fascistic ethno-nationalism expressing itself. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like, architecture really matters to me. And when we were in Hungary last summer, I gave a speech. I never write anything down. So I was just giving a speech. And I just launched into this thing about architecture because I really care about it. And whatever. It's not, you know, I like pretty architecture that elevates the human spirit and not, 
sort of grotesque steel and glass architecture that crushes the human spirit. I mean, it's that simple. It's not, I have no complex or brilliant views on this at all. They're very, very normal views, but I really, really mean it. So I give this speech and like David Frum, when he said to me, it's like, oh, he's Albert Speer. <laughs> he cares about architecture. He's a Nazi. It's just, um, it's hilarious. So there Tucker says that after he talked about architecture during the speech he gave in Hungary, that he was accused of being a Nazi in compared to Albert Speer. Um, Albert Speer, we're going to talk about a bit more later. He was uh, Hitler's architect and the, the leading architect for the Nazi party. Um, and so at the time when we did our Hungary episode, we got some comments about that from listeners who were like, holy shit, Tucker is echoing Nazi talking points about architecture. And again, I just, I was like, I, I don't really know what's going on there, but Tucker makes reference to that here. And so at this point, I think it would behoove us to go over what we know about Tucker's architectural views. We know that he thinks American cities are ugly. He talks about that all the time. Um, Not we know bullet holes. Yeah. We know that he likes architecture that uplifts the human spirit. Subjective <laughs> at best. I was, I was actually going to say this since you brought it up again. Um, what I think would um, uplift the human spirit is um, being able to afford to live in a place uh, and so if the only housing available is extremely extravagant, expensive, like complexes and, and houses and stuff that no one can afford, I, am, I think that that's actually more oppressive to the, to the human spirit than having yeah. like affordable housing. Yeah, I would think that's probably fair. And then in terms of more like aesthetics, he, we, we know that he hates dollar stores. Um, that came up in his Charlie Kirk interview and has come up a couple of times since that he thinks dollar stores everywhere are really ugly. Yes, I remember that. And we know that he hates unnatural building materials. Um, he he do, he doesn't like drywall, but really he 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 doesn't like uh, anything that he anything that separates him from an unnatural aesthetic. He he likes to be surrounded by like wood. He he also he said he doesn't like like overhead or fluorescent lighting. So th- that that's kind of the basic uh, pieces that we can we can pick up off the floor move into this like we we have a general sense of some of his aesthetic references right why can't he just like live in a house that he finds ideal and not tell everyone else how to live yeah because he 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 thinks (laughs) that he thinks that his preferences are uh an objective standard yeah they're like signs of a universal human need that like if i think it's better to live this way then it's clearly better for everybody to live this way that they came up over and over again in that uh, TPUSA speech. Yeah. So then at this point, let's step back in time a little bit and revisit what exactly did Tucker say about architecture while he was in Hungary? But here's what I like more about the landscape of Hungary, a few Soviet remnants notwithstanding. It's pretty. It is pretty. The buildings are pretty. The architecture uplifts. So this is another... This is another third rail in American politics. You're not allowed to note that our buildings are grotesque and dehumanizing. Why are they bad? Because they're ugly and ugly dehumanizes us. And by, let me be more precise about what I mean when I say dehumanizing. Dehumanizing is the act of convincing people that they don't matter, that they are less significant than the larger whole. 
that they are not distinct souls, that they are not unique, that they are not created by God, that they are merely putty in the hands of some larger force, that they must obey. This is what all authoritarian movements do. You don't matter. Wear a mask. You're all the same. Ugly architecture, brutalist architecture, glass and steel architecture, Mies van der Rohe architecture was designed to send that message. Not to uplift, but to oppress. And it is very noticeable, and this is never noted in the United States, which unfortunately over time has had its aesthetic sense dulled. We've been told it's not important. What matters is GDP, really. You know, get the new microwave or whatever, the new car, the new place in Aspen. Yeah, I'm not against any of that. I'm not against wealth, for sure. But I would trade it to live in a pretty place, a place that uplifts your spirit by looking at it. Okay. Um, so I Googled uh, Hungary, and I'm looking at pictures of Budapest to try to get an idea of what uh, he's talking about. And I'm seeing a lot of, like, colossal churches and palaces. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so Tucker likes it when rich people have extravagant displays of wealth and when churches like are the identity of your city is what i'm guessing yeah he like he likes big loud ostentatious architecture he 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 likes like domed ceilings and gargoyles and all that shit Th- there was a lot in there but the most important thing that he said for us to unpack as we go is that um glass and steel architecture misa vandero architecture was designed with the purpose of of dehumanizing people and early on when he's talking about like these th- these features of our society designed with these like social engineering goals of diminishing the human spirit we can already see some echoes of the cultural marxism stuff in that that we've talked about before the idea that like within our art within our culture there are these things being that we're being uh covertly subjected to with the express purpose of d- diminishing our our american spirit our our individuality because uh, they want us all to be collectivized we, we 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 can see some kind of echoes of that in there and that's an idea we're going to explore more as we go through this um so the the the, the cultural marxism stuff has a lot of the same roots as a lot of these architectural critiques read the nazis and and that of course is the idea that the the cultural marxism is the idea that uh these jewish professors who who fled germany ended up uh, getting prestigious positions in these american universities and engineering things to slyly infect american youth with marxism through the university system it's just so silly like to what end if they if they did that they're teaching about a person who they thought had good ideas like isn't that what all professors do like as far as we know isaac newton had some real good ideas about calculus so we still teach them (laughs) so (laughs) someone was like hey uh i think this carl guy has got some good ideas about uh the history of society (laughs) Uh, and I want to tell you guys what what he said. Uh, like that that's like what university is. It's like yeah, <laughs> people had some, people had some good ideas, and uh, we 
we want to tell you about them. Yeah. So then, uh, z- zooming in on on his comment that Mesa Vandero architecture is designed to degrade the human spirit. Um, so Tyler, I bet you don't know who Mies van der Rohe is. You would be correct. Mies van der Rohe is uh, a, a really famous 20th century architect. If you have been to Chicago, you've seen the uh, the impact that Mies van der Rohe has had on architecture in America. Okay. Um, the, the, the Chicago skyline is essentially a work of, of Mies. Okay. Um, but before we can really dive into the role that Mies van der Rohe plays in this story, you've got to understand a bit about German architecture after World War I. My biggest resource for this biographical part is uh, an article in The Guardian called Mies and the Nazis by Tom Dykoff. Through the 1920s, the Weimar Republic was a, a hotbed for, for modernist architecture. These were buildings built with glass, steel, and reinforced concrete. They would use steel frames to reduce the number of walls necessary and create open space. Um, these were these were really practical buildings based on the idea that form follows function, and they embraced minimalism. Um, the The modern architectural style did not appreciate ornamentation. Instead, modernists preferred an emphasis on horizontal and vertical lines. These buildings were meant to be functional and undistracting. Modern architects did not hide the structural elements. Building materials like concrete and steel were often left visible. And, and this is a big cultural shift from kind of the, the, the classical Greco-Roman or Gothic architecture that preceded it, right? With your vast ornamentation and your gilded walls. And your... Yeah, yeah. And it was within this cultural shift in the 1920s uh, in Berlin that Ludwig Mies stepped onto the scene. Mies essentially essentially reinvented himself along with Berlin. Out went his old name, Ludwig Mies, and in came the much sexier Mies van der Rohe. And in addition to ditching a boring name, he also ditched his boring wife and children. The old ball and chain. (laughs) Mies and his wife never divorced, but from this point on, uh, Mies relegated his wife and kids to annual visits, and beyond that was not really a part of their lives. Yikes. Mies at this time was an architect by trade, and he'd been trained in classical architecture, but he was a passionate convert to modernism. He embraced modernist architecture full bore, and he he took the style to extremes. He used as few walls as possible, building vast empty spaces. When he got to the U.S., he built a chapel that was so bare, it had to have a sign attached that said chapel, uh, so visitors knew knew where they were. He not only... He not only rejected unnecessary ornamentation, but maintained an, a, maintained an aversion to ugly fixtures such as plumbing, heating, and mosquito nets. Oh, okay. When he designed the Seagram building in New York, he included window blinds that would only stop in aesthetically pleasing conditions, and included a contractual subclause that the blinds could not be replaced with ones of lesser beauty. This guy sounds like a huge fucking headache, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, he... Uh, he, he <laughs> He built furniture that he himself said was furniture one had to learn to love. He was passionately devoted to this architectural style, like in a in a like mentally ill way, honestly. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, an example of the kind of thing we're talking about here. I'm going to show you some pictures of the German pavilion that he designed. Okay. Yes. Many straight lines. Th- this building was a big deal because it was he was the first to use glass walls. Okay. Very sparse of any ornamentation. Like it's, it, you've got, you've got open space and flat surfaces. 
that's very much the the, the Mies van der Rohe style. And a lot of the style that was forming in Berlin at the time was a product of the new economy that was developing. The, the kind of new modes of economic organization favored large factories and office spaces that needed to accommodate like large amounts of people doing specialized tasks. And so um, you couldn't really have like elaborate winding corridors and shit. Yeah. And, and that's where form follows function. Like a lot of this grew out of the, 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 the needs of a new economic model. While Mies became like the most famous proponent of this style fairly quickly, he didn't invent it. Um, a lot of this was driven by the Bauhaus. This was an architectural school in Germany founded in 1919. Mies became the director of Bauhaus in 1930. And I, I, I do need to clarify for the rest of the story to make sense that Bauhaus was in its original inception, a leftist institution. Its first director, again, uh, Gropius and its second guy named Hans Meyer were both socialists and the students at Bauhaus were trained in socialist principles, namely the efficient industrial mass production of good objects for the people. Mies, however, was not a socialist. In fact, he was insistently apolitical uh, and he was brought on as the director of Bauhaus in 1930 explicitly to make the institution apolitical. Mies just adamantly did not give a fuck about politics. He, he said architecture was a pursuit more noble than politics. And for him, uh, the politics that surrounded architecture were only ever really a distraction from the work, which he tried to ignore. Throughout, okay. the, throughout the 1930s Germany, though, politics was becoming increasingly harder to ignore because of, you know, the Nazis. Yeah, kind of a big deal. A little bit. Uh, so it was, um, it, it was on April 11th of 1933 the Mies arrived for work at Bauhaus and found the building was closed and cordoned off by armed police. The Gestapo was scouring the school for evidence linking Bauhaus to the Communist Party. There was also that the Nazis suspected that there was like a secret printing press at the school printing that published uh, anti-Nazi propaganda. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the next day, Mies visited Alfred Rosenberg, the Minister of Culture in the newly elected Nazi government. In Mises' recollection of the exchange, he sat down and said to Rosenberg, The Bauhaus has a certain idea, but this idea has nothing to do with politics. Look at your writing table, this shabby writing table. Do you like it? I would like to throw it out the window. That is what we at the Bauhaus want to do. We want to have good objects so that we do not have to throw them out of the window. <laughs> I just want to make buildings, damn it. Leave me <laughs> <Yeah>. alone <laughs> so I can make buildings for 20 hours a day. <laughs> He, he's he's like carrying around a placard of that meme like your politics bore me <laughs> <laughs> so rosenberg in turn said what do you expect me to do the bauhaus is supported by forces fighting our forces um so despite mises insistence rosenberg refused to reopen the school that day and rosenberg's was not a new position among the nazis germany's right wing had been targeting bauhaus for years in 1925, when the school was, was still led by its founder, Walter Gropius, Bauhaus was forced to leave Weimar by the city's right wing. A few years later, it was chased out of Dessau when, lo when, when local Nazis took the city council there. For the Nazis, the school's socialist roots were obviously a problem, as were its internationalist tendencies. Another term for modernist architecture at the time was the international style. For German nationalists, this was an affront to the people. And so, even under Mises' apolitical leadership, 
the Nazis still saw Bauhaus as a problem. The very style of its architecture, with its white walls, its stealing glass, its flat roofs, was considered anti-German. The Nazis wanted a national architecture that was rooted in German history, an architectural style that clearly harkened back to the bygone days of greatness that they promised to return to. This new style, engineered to fit a modern international world that the Nazis rejected, was inherently subversive from their point of view. The Nazis favored a, quote, people's architecture, and, and thought that the, the modern style, or Bauhaus architecture, was an attempt to strip the German identity. So after Rosenberg refused to reopen the school, Mies tried a different approach. Every other day, he went to the Gestapo headquarters to complain. After three months of this, he received a letter on July 21st giving permission for the Bauhaus to reopen, but only if the curriculum was rewritten to suit the demands of the Nazi party, and if two of its left-wing teachers were replaced with, quote, individuals who guarantee to support the principles of the National Socialist ideology. Rather than give in to these demands, Mies gathered his colleagues, opened a bottle of champagne, and formally closed the school himself, which is a baller move. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Um, Now, with all that said, the closing of Bauhaus wasn't as final a nail in the coffin as you might think. Prior to 1934, there were some in the Nazi party, including Joseph Goebbels, who thought that the international style could be useful to Nazi ends. And the Nazis did have a fixation on industrialism that was not wholly incompatible with Mises' philosophy of efficient functional design. And it was because of this that Mies, in 1934, tried to integrate himself with the new state and actually got off to a promising start. And it was looking like he might be able to maintain a career in Nazi Germany. But that fell apart in 1934 when Hitler met Albert Speer. Speer was a young architect who had joined the Nazi party and, by 34, had been appointed to the, by, by 1934, not the age of 34, don't know why I wrote it that way. <laughs> by 1934, had been appointed to, to, to the position of Hitler's personal architect. Hitler himself was an amateur architect, and he and Sphere took a liking to each other immediately. They would have meetings on Sundays where they would pour over plans for new state buildings. And Hitler told Sphere that he wanted, to desi- wanted him to design, quote, buildings for me such as haven't been built for perhaps 4,000 years. Speer indulged Hitler's taste for sentimental, for sentimental nationalist architecture. The two laid out a plan for a Gothic Germany, built on bombastic classicism, hearkening back to the Roman Empire. Speer modeled a redesigned Berlin, replete with domes and columns and elaborate cathedrals, draped in eagles and swastikas. Hitler absolutely loved the, uh, Speer's model for a new Berlin. The story goes that while Hitler was huddled down in the bunker waiting for death, he stared longingly at this this model of the city that they never got to build, which is a Hitler move. <laughs> yeah. It was Speer and Hitler's relationship that really drove home the, the Nazi party's commitment to this sort of um, classical, uh, super nationalistic, bombastic architecture. And Mies fucking hated it. He, he viewed Sphere's designs as essentially stage sets built to be sentimental and emotional. It was everything that Mies rejected in his own design philosophy. And uh, a, a note on Albert Sphere, because um, a- after, the, after the collapse of um, the Nazis in World War II, uh, in, in, in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, Sphere did a lot of work to present himself as a uh, he, he was really repentant that he had ever been involved in the Nazi party and he didn't know how bad they were. He was just drawn in by Hitler's 
um, but by Hitler's promises of greatness and the opportunity to realize his architectural dreams. And he didn't know what was going on in the concentration camps. He didn't know how bad their program was. And he, uh, he really regrets ever being a part of it. And he published these memoirs about it. He was kind of the original crying Nazi. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of work went into rehabbing Spears image and that is all bullshit. Since his death, evidence has surfaced. There, there was correspondence showing that Speer was present at the Posen speech, which was a, a speech where Heinrich Himmler laid out precisely what was happening at the concentration camps. Speer, throughout his life, insisted that while he was in Posen at the time, he wasn't at the speeches. Uh, we now have evidence that that's, that's not true. He was in attendance. Um, furthermore... Uh, Correspondence has also been dug up that reveals Speer visited several concentration camps in 1943 and 1944, and had even helped design them. Um, plus, as uh, as the Nazis' chief architect, in his building projects, he used Jewish slave labor, and commented that the Jews had uh, d- developed an innate skill for brick break- for brick making that they learned while they were enslaved in Egypt. Yikes. The Nazi architect was still a Nazi. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, I I came across a really funny story related to to this in in an article called uh, Nazi Architecture as Effective Weapon by Gaston Gordillo. One of Hitler's most cherished dreams was to build the largest monument ever created. Along with Speer, he planned to remake Berlin around what what he saw as the future core of the Germanic Empire, the People's Hall a dome that was to be 290 meters high and able to accommodate 180,000 people. Hitler was so obsessed with, the, with this gigantic dome, according to Speer, that he was deeply irked when he learned that the Soviet Union had begun construction on an even larger building in Moscow, the Palace of the Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> this palace was to be 495 meters high and was to be crowned with a huge statue of Lenin. Hitler was furious, for he felt Cheated, cheated of the glory of building the tallest monumental structure in the world. When Hitler ordered the invasion of, of the Soviet Union in 1941, Speer wrote that he realized Moscow's rival building had preyed on Hitler's mind more than he was willing to admit. As the German armies advanced toward Moscow, Hitler said, now this will be the end of their building once and for all. Uh... <laughs> I can't talk about this for too long or it'll turn into the whole episode, but like we talk about Nazis and Hitler, like they're evil masterminds, but like they're just egoist clowns yeah, with it, a lot of political power. Yeah, fucking exactly. You're, there's, there's still all these, all these, all these bros. Like, yeah, I mean, Hitler, Hitler did a lot of good stuff for Germany. He was actually a really good leader. No, he was a fucking methed out moron. Yeah. <laughs> He's a goddamn lunatic. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Don't trust the bro who does Nazi apologetics is the lesson, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, but that was like half my friends in high school. <laughs> okay, Troy. <laughs> I mean, to be we fair, left that town for a reason. Yeah, to be fair, you're the only one I have left. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I was only an anti-feminist for like a couple months. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, and I mean, we we don't. I mean, we don't need to talk about all the shitty opinions I had when you met me. So, <laughs> oh, we we did we did fight, we did fight. I do remember. 
Okay, you and all of my friends just like s- said shit to irk me, so I didn't know what you meant and what you didn't mean. Oh, me either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, back to back to Mies. Um, unable to find work, Mies finally left Germany in 1937 and moved to moved to the United States. He did try returning to Germany in March of 1938 and found that the climate there had grown even more conservative than when he left. Um, the, the degenerate art ex- exhibition had taken place, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, oh, okay. And Mies himself fell under suspicion, with the Gestapo investigating his associations with communists and Jews at Bauhaus. Mies was harshly questioned by Gestapo officers and quickly packed what he could and fled to New York. From this point, he remained in the U.S. and became, and became famous for his work here. Um, like I said, he's, his influence can be seen all over Chicago. Um, the Trump Tower in Chicago is sort of sub-Mesian. And in fact, a lot of Trump Towers are, which is really funny for reasons we'll talk about later. Okay. But yeah, that's kind of the, the, uh, the ingredients from which this stew kind of forms of um, a, a disdain for modernist architecture and a, a, a hearkening back to the greatness of classical architectural styles as a right-wing talking point. Um, I was going to say, that sounds awfully familiar. Make yeah. America great again. So the a, a, a couple of examples of this being used by the by the, uh, by the the right-wing media sphere. Paul Joseph Watson, noted hater of social justice warriors. Soy boys. Paul Joseph Watson, British shithead, um, posted a video in 2017 titled, Why Modern Architecture Sucks. And another in 2019 titled Latest Atrocities in Modern Architecture. Um, and, and these are, I have a lot in common with the, with that video he did about why modern art is degenerate, which is explicitly like, this is, that's the way that Nazis talked about this stuff. And that like, this art or this architecture wasn't just not their tastes, but it was degenerate. It was, uh, it, it was toxic to the Volk and to the German identity. And it was bad for the German spirit. Um that right bringers still do this today like the only argument they have is the things we don't like are degenerate they just like wrap more language around it to disguise it yeah that concept of like degenerate art in the nazi vernacular is important for this like it that was a term the nazis adopted to describe modern art um according to the nazi line art modern artwork was an insult to the german feeling um it was it was Jewish or communist in nature. This extended to like they preferred tonal music versus atonal. And kind of the, the biggest example of this was the degenerate art exhibit in Munich. Um, where and it the, where, was actually called the degenerate art exhibit. It was actually called the degenerate art exhibit. Yeah, this was put on by the Nazis, um, the Nazis Ministry of Culture. And it contained just uh, like over a thousand works of confiscated art that they considered degenerate. God, they just had no chill. They were just very open about, yeah, this is bad because we say so. Yeah, and a lot of this, like, the idea that this art was, like, toxic to the human soul and a, a pollution on the Vulcan made them less German by by their exposure to it. Yes. Um, you can see echoes of those types of ideas in the way that the cultural Marxism theory operates today. There's a lot in this milieu that is directly back to uh to nazi thought in those videos about architecture paul joseph watson said things like good or bad architecture can lift or subdue the human spirit and 
Aesthetic ugliness encourages ugly behavior. I was going to try an accent there, and I chickened out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just Paul Joseph Watson, uh, although he's a particularly punchable example. And he has beautiful eyes. It pisses me off. Troy texted me, everyone listening, Troy texted me just out of nowhere this week. It was like, why does Paul Joseph Watson have to be so hot? And was like... (laughs) (laughs) Pisses me off. It's not right. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's not not fair. Sometimes right-wingers are hot. I'm sorry, Troy. I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, but Thierry Baudet, a far-right politician in the Netherlands frequently derides ugly architecture, by which he means non-classical architecture, and says that it corrupts Dutch society. Um, Baudet is famous for using the term oikophobia. Uh, that's the fear, like the fear of your own home. Um, okay. To denote the idea that an international elite of leftist architects have turned away from all things homegrown in order to undermine the foundations of the nation state. So his argument is basically that like, this modern architecture has nothing to do with with Dutch heritage or Dutch roots or Dutch history, um, it, and it's been imposed on us to try and uh, try and separate us from our history and dissolve the idea of a nation state. I'm sorry, I got lost. Who is this? A person who talks today, or was this a person who yeah, was talking um, in the 1940s? Yeah, he, he's a, he's an active uh, nationalist politician in the Netherlands. Okay. Far-right parties in Germany and the UK have also launched revivalist architecture movements. This is particularly pronounced in Germany's AFD party, where AFD followers have begun restoring and erecting traditionalist structures in, the, in rural parts of the East uh, that seek to counter the death of the Volk. Something that's really taken off in recent years is like architecture-based Twitter accounts. And weirdly, a lot of them have some super sketchy right-wing tendencies. There are two good articles about this. I'll link in the episode description. Um, but the, the, the short of it is that these accounts like European beauty and architectural revival tend to celebrate like a historical European architecture while whitewashing its history and um, erasing the contributions of non-white Europeans, as well as uh, I- ignoring many like singularly non-white achievements or uh, Muslim achievements in architecture. Um, the comments on these accounts are often full of anti-Semitism and other big tree and conspiracy theories. And um, some of these accounts like Architectural Revival follow people like Lauren Southern, uh, who we talked about recently as a, as a total monster. So um, th- there's just like the this, this weird trend of a lot of these Twitter accounts that dabble in this weird like crypto white nationalist underbelly beneath the veneer of being about architecture or celebrating Western art. And two of them in particular, the the Architectural Revival and European Beauty, um, they showed up on a list called Five Twitter Accounts Will Make You Proud to Be a European that was published by the white nationalist group Defend Europa. So um, th- th- there's, a, th- there's a weirdly consistent kind of crypto-fashy trend with a lot of these accounts. So there seems to be a trend in right-wingers being really interested in a certain type of architecture. Yeah, and specifically the the idea that like this architecture represents a time when Europeans were great and achieving these great things, and they were white Europeans, of course, not those not those Muslims. Yeah. Um, outside of Twitter, one of the leading proponents of this stuff has been a guy named Roger Scruton. 
Screwtown published a book in, in 1979 called The Classical Vernacular, Architectural Principles in the Age of Nihilism that touched on a lot of these ideas and where nihilism is essentially a synonym for leftism. <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> um, and in that book, Scruton argues that architecture lost its way in the early 20th century when it veered away from classical and Gothic figures. Scruton also hosted, hosted a documentary on the BBC in 2009 titled Why Beauty Matters, which Paul Joseph Watson borrowed, borrowed clips from for his own video. Scruton was appointed to chair the British Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission in 2018. In the commission's report titled Making Space for Beauty, they outlined their goal as exploring what went wrong in the 20th century. Scruton was, was subsequently removed from the commission for racist remarks he made during an interview with the New Statesman, where Scruton stated that Chinese people were replicas of one another, and that there was, quote, an invasion of huge tribes of Muslims into Hungary. He was later reinstated to the commission. Uh, okay. And this strain of thinking shows up, unsurprisingly, in the Trump administration. In February, in February of 2020, Trump drafted an executive order titled Make Federal Buildings Beautiful Again, which, of course, that's what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, it was later retitled Promoting Beautiful Federal Civic Architecture. Um, Thank God. <laughs> Stop letting Trump name shit. For real. He's got, like... 10 buildings and they're all named trump get his re his re-election slogan is just going to be make make trump president again oh god <laughs> it is too <laughs> like it's just that hurt me to think about trump <laughs> uh and that executive order described modern federal buildings constructed over the last five years as undistinguished uninspiring and just plain ugly which I don't think is how executive orders are usually written, but I might be wrong. <laughs> Tangentially related, a friend of mine keeps texting me that Trump is being found guilty of crimes by federal judges. And I'm like, okay, call me when he is facing consequences for those crimes. I already know that he committed crimes. He did it all the time. And obviously. Yeah. It, like <laughs> nobody is shocked that crime president did crimes. <laughs> it, yeah. I know Trump, Trump did crimes. Trump did crimes. <laughs> Trump did crimes. Um, I, I don't need to see articles every time a, a judge says he did. It's like, we know. Yeah. Call me when he's in cuffs. And that executive order stated that um, classical architectural style shall be the preferred and default style for federal buildings. The order singled out architectural styles mirroring those of ancient Rome, Greece, and Europe as its preferred models for federal construction. The executive order also decried the quality of government architecture for its failure to, quote, integrate our national values into federal buildings, which too often have been influenced by brutalism and deconstructivism. So that sounds familiar to some of the stuff we talked about, right? The idea that architecture should reflect the, the, the spirit of the nation. Uh, that certainly is a thing that Tucker is talking about. And, and this executive order was essentially overturning the uh, the General Service Administration's guiding principles for federal architecture. The, those guidelines were established during the Kennedy administration in 1962 and were written by a senator, a senator named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Moynihan wrote in a memo to Kennedy, the belief that good design is optional or in some way separate from the question of provision of office space for itself does not bear scrutiny and in fact invites the least efficient use of public money. 
Moynihan wrote in The Guiding Principles that federal architecture must provide visual testimony to the dignity, enterprise, vigor, and stability of the, of the American government. However, Moynihan's guiding principles also stated that an official architectural style should be avoided and that new buildings should reflect the time in which they are built. Trump's order sought to undo those guidelines by imposing an official style that uh, was meant to reflect classical architecture. Um, the executive order allowed Trump to create the President's Committee for the Rebeautification of Federal Architecture. One of the members appointed, that, appointed to that commission was a guy named Justin Shubo, who we're going to talk about more in a little bit. Since then, Biden has resented that order and disbanded the Rebeautification Committee. Cool, it, I guess. Yeah, but it's just like you, you can see a lot here that like this is often used by people in the sort of hard right milieu as a, as a way of it, it's essentially a smokescreen for talking about the, the inherent greatness of European people. So then at this point, we can get back to Tucker Carlson. So we, we can see some overlap here in the way that he talks about these things, because the idea that modern architecture demoralizes you and classical architecture uplifts you has some echoes to going back to the way um, the way that Nazis talked about this stuff and how people have picked up and repurposed those talking points to further to further nationalist ends since. Yes. It's but, not just because Tucker quote unquote cares about architecture that people are upset. Yeah. He piece of shit. But there's also uh, some other characteristics to the way Tucker feels about this stuff that don't quite fit into this box. And uh, to illustrate where I think some of that goes, I want to play this clip. Um, this is from his interview when he appeared on, uh, I mentioned it last week, Steve Rinella's Meat Eater podcast. Um, they talked a lot about fishing in that podcast. And here Tucker was talking about how in some of the rivers that he fishes in, red tide is a problem. The reasons for that, it's like development in the area, polluting the waterways. And that leads Tucker to say this. You just have to, and by the way, I'm not, I'm probably a little more on the Ted Kaczynski side of the equation, actually, when it comes to development, actually a lot more, if I'm being totally honest. Oh, he was a Montana guy for a while. He was a Montana guy. He was a Montana guy and, and obviously a bad person who killed people. And I'm totally opposed to that, but also, you know, not a stupid person at all. And a, and a very deep person and an interesting person with a lot of anyway whatever don't get me going but um I but I think you know people have a right to have houses and people want to live in pretty places and you can't stop all development you should stop all strip malls and dollar stores obviously but you can't stop all <laughs> development and people want to golf I get it so you've got competing imperatives and desires and it's a you know country of 350 million people it can't just be about you know 52 year old fly fishermen okay I get it. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, like the views of 52-year-old five fishermen should also be represented. Yeah. I think. They should be. Man, that guy was a mass murderer, but he sure had some good ideas, didn't he? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, uh, yeah so Tucker is a soft no on the Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tyler, what do you know about the Unabomber? There was a there was a scene about him in uh, in Goodwill Hunting. Uh, that's the last experience I had. That was the last time I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and th this is just a criminally short overview because it's not the subject of this episode. 
Um, but you know, he he was like a a, a really smart guy, a math prodigy. Um, also had some some psychological issues. Really hated urbanism. Hated being around people. Hated like industrialization development. Um, tried to move to to like a remote cabin in the woods found that a, a road had been built along the area he tried to live in in the woods, which pissed him off enough that he started sending people bombs in the mail. Um, <sighs> okay. And then, and then uh, he, he sent a letter to a bunch of newspapers, basically saying they had to publish his 35,000-word manifesto or he would send more bombs. Um, so most of them published this manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future. This manifesto was all about how essentially industrialization has been terrible for society. Technology is uh, is bad for human beings and has degraded the human condition. And uh, Kaczynski essentially calls for uh, uh, a a revolution and going back to a sort of primitivist pre-technological pre-industrialization state of being for society. Um, there's definitely some stuff in there that sounds a little bit like Tucker, <laughs> but like, I'm not going to pull those clips out of context or anything. That seems unfair, but I, I will say Tucker, I, I would assume is Reddit, given that he thinks that Kaczynski is a, a deep and insightful person who had some good ideas. And, and this gets into something I talked, I talked about a little bit with our listener, Alyssa. Um, Tucker isn't just anti-modernist architecture. He seems anti industrialization in his rhetoric um yeah he like he he said there obviously you can't stop all development and i get that people want to play golf and want to and want to live in houses but you should at least stop all all strip malls and dollar stores um and then he he, even like we clowned on him for it but even his stuff about how he hates drywall and wants natural building materials there is sort of like this primitivist strained to him where he seems to think that it would be better to live in like a pre-industrial state um yeah and like i I, again like i was saying last week i think a lot of his like grizzled detached outdoorsman thing is is myth making and i I, just knowing how much he likes to gossip with journalists and shit I, i i doubt that tucker himself would actually live like that if given the option but i believe he likes to think of himself that way yeah and so that's why i I don't want to i don't want to go too hard on this unabomber stuff because i don't think he's like a devoted kaczynskiite um okay but but it's important to recognize there are some strains of that in his thinking because a good point that Alyssa made a a lot of the impulse that drives him to be sort of anti-industrial um if he really listened to the to what his complaints are it seems more anti-urban. He hates cities. We remember he, he did that monologue recently about population um, and overcrowding being a problem. He he was really encouraging people to move out to like small towns and isolated areas in that uh, in that TP USA speech. He hates like houses built of, of mass-produced materials. Like I it, it, he he seems to have this sort of anti-urban strain to his thinking and then if you get into that it's like well a a big part of why tucker might not like urban living um is that you know that's where the non-white people are and that's where um like cultural mores i'm uncomfortable with are 
And that's where I have yep. to be exposed to ideas I don't like. Um, yep. And so I think that that's probably something underlying a lot of this and like how he gets to a lot of the, a lot of the places he reasons himself to. Um, and that's what yeah, I wanted. I think that tracks. But like that, th- th- that does give some more context to some of this stuff that he says. Um, for example, here's another clip from that Hungary speech immediately following where, where we left off before. Why is it more clarifying and refreshing and joy giving to sit in a meadow than it is in a parking lot? Because sitting in a meadow reminds you, you can't help but know that you are connected to nature, created by God, which will endure after you're gone, which existed before you arrived. Nature is the reminder of human folly. There is a limit to what people can achieve. I don't care what some stupid politician promises me. He'll be gone. So will I. So will my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So will my civilization. But nature will endure. That gives you, like humor, perspective. And it connects you to the eternal. And it gets you asking questions about what happens after you die. And maybe accumulating wealth and power isn't the point of life. Maybe there's something bigger. Maybe there's meaning. That's what nature reminds you of. The parking lot suggests that this is all there is. It's utilitarian. Cars park on top of it. They have no respect for it. It was built by people. Everything about that landscape, about the harsh, angular, concrete landscape of modern cities, tells you that you are worthless and that beauty and truth and eternity do not matter. Why are they telling you that? Why do you think they're telling you that? You think there's some reason? Yeah. So they can manipulate you for their own power and aggrandizement. So physical beauty, aesthetics matter. Maybe more than most things, actually. And we can debate what is beauty. But it won't be a very long debate because, like pornography, we know it when we see it. So what I think is important there, the idea he's presenting that this separation of humans from direct interaction with nature and with with like the beauty of the natural world is a deliberate attempt by the powers that be to subvert uh human connection to the eternal and like things things outside of themselves um because it makes it easier to control now we know that in tucker's conception of the world the goals of this of this clandestine elite that they're working toward include um bringing in scores of non-white people into the, into the, into the United States. Yes. And, um, and replacing them, yeah. replacing all of the white people with non-white people. And, and like, as far For as the reasons. clearly, as far as the clearly articulated goals, that's kind of it. Like, I don't know what else Tucker's enemies grand plan is other than that, you know? Um, yeah, no, it's just to inconvenience him. That's the, that's the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, and so that th- that clip, I think, with everything we know about Tucker, helps us make the bridge between this anti-industrial, anti-urban thinking and his racial fears. The idea that if we're all packed together away from nature, close in, in close proximity in these cities, then I have to be close to people I don't want to be. Yeah, I think that works. That works for me. And so that that that's something to keep in mind. 
as you move into the into the 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 second leg of this episode because I mentioned he did that Tucker Carlson Today interview with uh, um, James Charles Kunstler. Who was uh, actually named that. <laughs> so let's meet briefly Mr. Kunstler. He, uh, he, he, he runs a blog that I will say the name of in a few minutes for comedic effect. He, he's a, a blogger and a novelist. And he's also written some nonfiction books. What makes him relevant to this conversation, he wrote a book called The Geography of Nowhere, which is sort of a history of American suburbia and urban development, um, where he lays out a lot of these same arguments we talked about, that modern art is degenerate, or modern architecture is degenerate. Um, Okay. And then uh, another thing he's big on, he wrote The Long Emergency, um, and then a follow-up called Living in the Long Emergency, which are about... um, are, are you familiar with the concept of peak oil? Uh, no. So peak oil is the moment at which the amount of petroleum we can we can remove from the earth starts to permanently decrease. So Isn't the, that always happening? It's a non-renewable resource. Yeah, it's kind of the whole point. Okay. <laughs> um, but but the way Kunstler views views the situation, and I think I, I think he's more or less right about this. Um, he thinks that the way that we have designed modern life and modern cities um, requires a, a level of energy consumption that is not sustainable given our reliance on fossil fuels. Eventually, we will not have the fossil fuel resources available to keep running things in the way that we have. Um, and so Kunstler imagines that we will see sort of a we'll see these cities become obsolete as we no longer have the energy resources to run them. He, he sees this resulting in the end of industrialized society. He, he pictures the future of American life as Americans living in a smaller scale, localized agrarian communities. He, he's written about this a lot. He's been on, he's been on that tip a long time. The long emergency was published in 2005 he does not see renewable energy or green energy as a solution to this problem. Because... I was just going to say, I was just going to say, as often happens with people on the right, I will agree with them on a problem. And then we will vehemently disagree on the solution to that problem. Right. Yeah. And he, uh, and the, the argument he will make is that in order to make things like solar panels and wind turbines, we need fossil fuel resources in order to build those things. What? I, I would argue that's a short-term uh, problem. Uh, you, you might need some investment of fossil, re- fossil fuel resources up front, but then once you have more renewable energy, you can use it to do more things. Yes. Um, but it... Obviously? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, sorry. That, 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 that seems fairly straightforward to me, but it Kunstler views it as an unsolvable quandary. <laughs> and so... Um, and also, I guess he just doesn't think nuclear energy exists. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't read the book, and maybe he tackles that. He didn't in this interview. And so uh, Tucker, he brings on he brings on uh, Jim Kunstler. The, the, the thesis of this conversation is supposed to be why are American cities so ugly? They don't actually dedicate a ton of time to that in the interview, which is good for us because then we don't have to talk about the whole thing. There's another thing going on here in that Tucker is a fucking Kunstler fanboy. Um, 
this is kind of weird because I've been I've been watching Tucker religiously for a year and I've never heard him mention this guy before. Um, but once he's on the show, Tucker cannot contain his excitement. Like Tucker really likes the dude's work. All right. Welcome to Tucker Carlson today. James Howard Kunstler is one of the most important public intellectuals in this country. I see him often in my peripheral vision sighing. He doesn't like that description, but it's true. You may not be familiar with him. We can promise you that people who read him and his blog, whose name we can't actually read on the air because it has a naughty word in it, are obsessed with Mr. Kunstler. He's the author of more than 20 books. He's been thinking very deeply about the country. It's most basic elements, how we live, where our energy comes from, not peripheral things, core questions. He's been thinking about them deeply and clearly for decades, and we thought this was the perfect venue to benefit from the accumulated wisdom of his thinking. James Howard Kunstler joins us on set. Mr. Kunstler, thank you very much for coming. A pleasure. That was his sort of glowing introduction of Mr. Kunstler. Um, the name of the blog that he couldn't say on air, it, it's it's called Clusterfuck Nation. And I don't know why Tucker couldn't say that, because they do swear on Tucker Carlson today. Like, his guests swear semi-regularly on that show. It's on the streaming service. Like, it, I, I don't know why he wasn't allowed to say Clusterfuck. Uh, my guess is that is something that right-wingers say to make their audience upset with the left for no reason. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, they're they're censoring our free speech. I can't say this because because of those damn lefties. You're probably right. That's probably what it was. <laughs> so, the, and then before they get get into this interview, Tucker has a lot more flattery for Kunstler. So, give us the um, if uh, you probably hate to hear this, but I just have to say it. If you want to know how unfair American society has become, particularly in the arts and letters. I think you should be one of the most famous people in the country, and I think your ideas ought to be determining where we go uh, next. And I, I don't think that viewers are as familiar with you as they should be. So give us the—you you started as a journalist. Give us the five minutes on how you got to where you are now. I think you should be one of the most famous people in the country, and your ideas should determine where we go next. That's about as high a praise as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with and when Tucker says that to someone, uh, I become deeply afraid for what their ideas are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is the first clip we're going to hear Kunstler speak. Um, this goes on the tail end of a few minutes of him talking about his his early writing career, how he he wrote eight novels that didn't make him famous, and then he um, he did some journalism gigs and he got a, a a job writing for Rolling Stone, and then he he. So at this point, he's talking about an article he pitched at Rolling Stone that they rejected. And uh, the fourth or fifth article I did for them, they rejected. Uh, and the working title was, uh, why is America so effing ugly? It's a great yeah. question. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd been thinking about this for a while. But um, I why, ended up... Why, why, Tanrup, why do you think they rejected that piece? Um, cause they, the, cause they were clueless. They had no idea where I was going with it. It was yeah. too esoteric and arcane. Too for radical them. for them. Yeah. Uh, just, I, I'm, I'm not a radical. I, I'm like emphatically not a radical, but it was just, it had entered a realm of ideas that was indigestible for yeah. them. Okay. And I, I could actually cut to the chase and tell you exactly why America is so ugly. It took me years to actually 
figure it out enough to encapsulate it. So it can't be that I'm a bad writer. It's just that my ideas are too high level. Yeah, it was too rolling stoners. It was too edgy for them. My ideas gave them indigestion. (laughs) 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 Uh, So he's going to explain why American cities were so ugly, though. He's figured it out. It took him years, but he cracked the code. And any predictions for what we're about to hear? We have abandoned our traditions, our, our European heritage, and and we have lost our, our cultural identity because we've something, something. That's my, that's my guess. See, that is a fantastic guess. The issue is that you're not <laughs> enough of a pretentious decor. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us why. Because it's one of the great it's atrocities simple. that nobody ever mentions. We have the most beautiful continent on the planet. Mm-hmm. Some of the best people. And we planet. messed it up. And we have dollar stores everywhere. So why is that? Because uh, um, what all of that represents, all that smearage across the landscape of all this chain store nonsense and other garbage, is that it is entropy made visible. Entropy made visible. It's entropy made visible. So we're living in this sort of uh, immersive, uh, uh, entropic uh, living arrangement that makes us feel bad all the time. Because entropy is that force in physics and in nature that drives things towards death and, and stasis. And when you imbue your entire built world with that quality, you know, not only are you building, building something, you're constructing something which is uh, anti-human, but it's also something that will never be worthy of your affection. So, uh, you know, Americans, wealthy Americans spend thousands and thousands of dollars going to Europe and walking around these charming European towns, you know, and loving it. And then they come back to their own towns in Minnesota and pass laws that make it impossible to build anything that is worth caring about. You know, they'll turn Main Street into a six laner. You know, they'll destroy all the street trees because they get in, in you know, in the way of the wires. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll they'll get rid of uh, parallel parking so the cars can all move faster. And then the, then what used to be Main Street behaves like an interstate highway yes. and stuff like that. And, um so uh, it took me a long time to figure that out. And, and so the book came out under the, the title, The Geography of Nowhere. Yes. And it was intended as a general, uh, for general readers. And it became kind of a cult classic in the architecture schools. Well, very much. And not just, not just among architects or budding architects, but among people who had wondered to themselves what happened to the country. Yeah. So uh, you're right. That was about as much pretension as I could take. So the reason American cities are ugly is because it's a representative of the universe's march toward decay. I, I, I I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I've turned that over a lot in my head and I, I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) <laughs> They're so mad about these fucking chain stores, but like they don't offer any solutions for global capitalism that demands we lower costs by having like things be in the hands of as few companies as possible, yeah. paying people as little as possible. I, I I think what they might be experiencing is just like they're depressed and nothing can ever be their fault. So they're blaming it on the buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. 
Like, man, if I didn't have to spread hatred and bigotry in a room covered in all this fucking drywall, I wouldn't feel so bad about it. <laughs> uh, Kunstler, he's going to talk about one of the features he runs on his website. It fleshed out a little bit. You said that our architecture, you described it in two ways that I think are really memorable. One, you called it anti-human. And the other, you said the buildings that we build, some often that we live in, are beneath us. They're never something that we can love or really They're unworthy care. of They're us. They're unworthy of us. Thank you. How are they anti-human? Well, they tend to defeat all the things that uh, human beings require in the way of neurological reinforcement to feel okay. Like, people like to feel sheltered. They don't like to feel like they're in a surrealist painting with, <laughs> with no fixable horizon. Yes. You know, they don't like to feel... For example, I run a feature on my website every every month called the Eyesore of the Month, which is the, the newest architectural horror being introduced by the the profession. And the new one is this like a hundred plus story building in, in near the Javits Center in New York that gets bigger and bigger as it goes up. So it looks like it's going to fall on your head, you know. So, you know, the thing is, people really don't like to see the buildings looking like they're going to fall on their head. So that's an intent. I mean, that's obviously it's much more complex to design a building like that than it would be a conventional building. They're doing it anyway. Yeah. It clearly evokes anxiety in people. Why are they doing that? Because there's been a program in uh, in the higher echelons of especially academic architecture for the last 20 years uh, to, to um, definitely make people feel bad, to induce anxiety in the in urban places. Um uh, Why you know, the hell would you want to do that? Because they feel that life isn't exciting enough. And uh, so my, you know, my point of view is this. Life is difficult for everybody. Yes, you people you know? get cancer. We don't need more excitement. Yeah, right. That's enough excitement. I don't need to feel like a building is falling down on my head. <laughs> right, and no, what, totally. What's even funnier is they're doing this 20 years after two of the biggest buildings in Manhattan fell down on people's heads. Yeah, I know. As if, you know, you can't demonstrate that that can happen. Okay. So in their world... The the liberal elites who have college educations and work in universities um, don't think life is exciting enough. Therefore, they have encouraged the building of architecture that induces anxiety to make yes. people's lives more exciting. Yeah, that's fucking bananas. <laughs> what? I, I mean, I, I tried looking into it. I was like, okay, is there anything to what he's talking about? Is there like an elite architectural cabal? No, there's that, no fucking way. <laughs> that has conspired to make a building more anxiety inducing. Because like, hey, life's pretty boring, huh? And I, it, I, I, I got nothing. I. Oh, really? You didn't find <laughs> anything? That's the most insane shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, life is hard right now, so we should fix society to make it better. <laughs> we should encourage, like, city planning that is walkable and community-driven. We should, like, break up trusts. And, I mean, they're, they're not called trust anymore but like giant companies that own fucking everything so that it's actually possible to like have an identity in your town and all that stuff like there are things we can do to fix this but tucker and uh jim over here 
all they can do is like, oh man, these liberal elites are doing this specifically to make life bad for me. Like, could you have a more like egocentric worldview? Like, oh my God. And to be clear, our position is not that like American cities are perfect. Like I, I, I think there are a lot of a lot of relevant issues, especially around housing, um, but also just like the walkability of of cities yeah. and urban centers, and how yeah. you 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 need a car to go places in most of America, yep. uh, which isn't ideal. So like th- th- there are a lot of issues. It just as usual, Tucker is brushing up against an actual problem, and then missing the point entirely and making up fake enemies that are responsible for the problem he's misunderstanding yep uh but they they, they want to talk about why the elites like this bad architecture and what is it about them that that makes things this way wendell berry had a wonderful essay on this which i know that you read where he talks about wendell berry being the north carolina farmer yeah, philosopher. yeah, yeah left-wing pacifist, but he had this amazing article years after 9-11 in which he asked, like, why are we building buildings like this in the first place? It's not a defense of the Terror Act, obviously, but it is an important question. Like, why would you build a building like that? Well, one of the reasons is that there's this sort of clerisy, as Tom Wolfe used to call them, uh, you know, of of hierophants, of the the viziers of uh, academic architecture who are constantly trying to prove that they are um, more uh, supernaturally endowed than the rest of the human race, and that you know they're they're they are the form givers who are <laughs> instructing us in how to be a better sort of human, a human being that is in the constant state of anxiety and always on the edge. And of course, these are the people, by the way, who never live in buildings like that. You know? <laughs> so, like what? What's Frank Geary's house look like? Well, as I understand it, Frank Geary lives in you know a, a, an American Renaissance uh, neoclassical right. you know suburban house <laughs> in outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> That's just too crazy. I, 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 and actually, I had a run-in with Frank Geary. Uh, there are a couple of parts of that we'll have to unpack separately. To start with, um, supernaturally endowed would be a great dear name. <laughs> it would, like, wouldn't it? Like Pendleton Ward is supernaturally endowed. <laughs> true, true. He can be both. He can be a supernaturally endowed Eminem fan, fetish fan artist. But yeah, um, so the 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 elites like this this uh, this architecture because they're a clerisy of hierophants who want to express that they. Uh, the, the, they possess higher spiritual knowledge and they are above the masses. And I don't know what the fuck that has to do with architecture. I always get, I always get caught up in this, but it's just like them complaining about the things that they do. And they do it all the time. Talking about like lesser people, like they're importing Mexicans. You, you know what I mean? Like, they, like yeah. he does, he does the, the we're better than them thing every day. Uh, and but it's 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 them that's doing it now because it's something I don't like. Like I'm finding this is exactly the kind of grifter that Tucker falls for. Tucker had kind of the same appreciation for Mencius Moldbug as like this this philosopher who I don't fully understand, but he's a really smart guy. It's just like if you can say shit that sort of sounds like you're answering a question. Um, but it doesn't actually mean anything, and it's just like pretentious and confusing, and makes references to books that Tucker hasn't read. Then Tucker will think you're a genius. 
we've all fallen for some pretentious grifter at some oh, point, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, So I can't fault him there, but he does bring these people onto national television, which I never did for Jordan Peterson. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. We did have Jordan Peterson the on the same. podcast once. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. How can I forget? <laughs> what was that december or something <laughs> <laughs> and then at, at the end there they started dunking on frank geary i just googled him he made things that i recognize but i wouldn't have been able to tell you that yeah he, he's like a pretty pretty renowned architect um yeah like his buildings were on my geometry textbooks in high school okay um, so the reason that they're dunking on frank geary right now is because uh frank geary is um the, the the architect leading the construction of the um Dwight D Eisenhower Memorial. And this Wait, has are been... they building a Dwight D Eisenhower Memorial right now? Yes, and this has been in the works since 2004. F- Frank Geary is the architect leading the, the 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 construction for Eisenhower's memorial. Um the plan for it seems kind of cool to me. There's there's like they're gonna be like these 80 foot pillars um and then there's a backdrop of these tapestries of woven steel depicting images from eisenhower's childhood okay this memorial it's kind of uh, um, a postmodern style and it's gotten a lot of backlash from people on the right um particularly justin shubo who was the guy that trump appointed to that rebeautification committee and Back in back in 2020, yes. Um, so Justin Chubo is the president of the National Civic Arts Society, which is like a right wing culture war think tank focused on architecture. Um, they despise modernism and advocate architecture in the classical tr- tradition. And Chubo has a profound hatred of the of the Eisenhower Memorial Plan. He wrote a 154 page treatise on the subject. When she said that Frank Geary's proposal for the memorial would be injurious to public morals. Um, Shubo concluded with the statement, no ground shall be broken, no ground despoiled by Geary's monstrous memorial. The the, the whole thing is written in that like apocalyptic tone. Um, Shubo, oh accuses, like, Shubo accuses Geary of wanting to celebrate death. Um, what? Which, you know, it makes sense because modern architecture is entropy made entropy made visible, as we now know. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. Everyone knows that. <laughs> so, uh, it, and then um, Shubo also filled out another spot on his right-wing bingo card by accusing his enemies of being pedophiles. The Don't plan- remind me of the confirmation hearings, Troy. <laughs> Jesus. The, uh, for oh, fucking real. Um, the, the Eisenhower Memorial includes uh, a statue of Eisenhower as a barefoot child. This is a reference to Eisenhower's 1945 homecoming speech following the end of World War II. Eisenhower opened that speech with the line, Because no man is really a man who has lost out of himself all of the boy, I want to speak first of the dreams of a barefoot boy. He goes on to describe his boyhood in Kansas and the, the, the dreams of greatness he had there that have followed him into adulthood and so um as part of the memorial plan geary wanted the statue of this barefoot boy as like a reference to that speech and and for that statue 
Frank Geary consulted with a sculptor named Charles Ray. Put a pin in Charles Ray because Justin Shubo, the right wing shithead, um, in this in this treatise about how bad the the memorial is, he wrote about the plan for that barefoot boy statue. Quote. The memorial's only statue of Eisenhower depicts him as a life-size barefoot young boy, a shrinky dink tyke Ikey. The design of the boy Eisenhower statue is being advised by Charles Ray, an artist whose work sexualizes children and is obscene. So when Shubo says that Ray's work sexualizes children, what he's referring to is a sculpture, a, a, a sculpture of Ray is called a boy with a frog. Um, I'll show you a picture of this, this statue quick. Okay. Yeah, so this is just like a, 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 a nude boy holding a frog. I don't know and a lot. This is sexualizing children? <laughs> Apparently. Um, um, I, don't know, I don't know a lot about statuary, but I think it's a nice statue. Yeah, it looks fine to me. Um, I feel like saying that this sexualizes children says more about the person saying that than about the statue. Yeah, because this, it, like, look it this up. This kid looks eight years old. Yeah, this statue is not Maybe. sexual. Like, it, it, it's, it's, no. it, it's, I guess it's sexual in the right wing way in that there exists genitals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that, that's really Sorry all. I'll break it to you, everyone on the right, but uh, children also have uh, penises. I mean, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just a nude boy holding a frog and like looking at it quizzically. And so that's the, the the sexualizing children that Charles Ray is guilty of. The ironic thing is that statue is actually heavily influenced by classical art. Uh, it, it's, it's a reference to a work by the Athenian sculptor Praxiteles, okay. who lived from 395 BC to 330 BC. Specifically, it references one of his works, which depicts a young boy chasing a lizard. Boy with Frog borrows from that concept, and the statue itself is painted white, like like Carrara marble. Um, Justin Shubo, Mr. Neoclassicism, apparently is not impressed by Boy, Boy with Frog. Uh, he notes in his diatribe that the figure is modeled on the 12-year-old son of Friends of the Artist. In his description, Shubo lingers on the boy's realistic genitalia and shapely buttocks, as well as the lack of body hair and nipples before getting to his point. Which is the frog. Yeah, eight-year-olds don't have body hair. What do you mean? <laughs> no. Also, um, statues don't have body hair. <laughs> Show me one statue that has body hair. Yeah, Shubo seems it's very confused. none of them. I'm sure I, now that I said that, there's a million that I haven't seen. Yeah, I'm sure. It'll be like a brutalist body hair statue. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I have to tell you, in particular, what Justin Shuba wrote about the frog that the boy is holding. Quote, The amphibian in his grasp is bumpy and veined, with its stiff leg perfectly erect. The frog is phallic, an adult penis in the hand of the boy. <laughs> oh my god. Talk about telling on yourself, man. That is such a weird as fuck thing to say. I, I cannot imagine how how my brain would have to contort to look at that frog and see a dick. It's a <laughs> fucking frog. So that, that that's hilarious. But what Shibo says next is less so. Quote, it is unclear whether Ray made a life cast from the boy's body 
in the way that Ray cast his own genitalia for his prior sculptures. So Shuba here is implying on the basis of absolutely nothing that Ray might have made a le- made a realistic cast of a boy's genitals. Okay. As you said, no evidence. So like what why engage? It's just accusing your enemies of being pedophiles, which is like the the thing that they do all the time when they don't have a reason to dislike something. It's like, well, it was made by a pedophile. So how about like, that? If, if he had gotten to 155 pages, he would have accused Frank Gehry of drinking adrenochrome. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and they never call actual pedophiles pedophiles. They only call non-pedophiles pedophiles because like they were fine with roy moore you know and and, like that's the thing like the QAnon pedophile hysteria does detract from like actual efforts to counteract human trafficking yeah um yeah because like oh god those reports have to be taken seriously and when they're based on weird shit you saw on 4chan (laughs) you're, you're, you're just wasting resources that could actually be going toward helping people yeah um sorry we keep getting sidetracked today (laughs) that's okay um so then uh at this point Kunstler lays out his theory of history through the lens of urban development you know i have this theory of history uh, that which i developed out of you know writing this series of books which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time yes you know many marriages happen that way Virtually everything. (laughs) That's true. I think Tucker might uh, might have some issues at home. What a groundbreaking idea! Things happen because people think they're a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's everything this guy says, dude. It's all like it sounds deep until you think about it for half a second. Yeah, I'm reminded of. Tucker's concentric circle theory, like, hey, I have this new groundbreaking idea. <laughs> Respect your family. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not hard to see why Tucker thinks this dude's a genius. They're they're both so far yeah. up their own ass. Because <laughs> then at this point, Tucker, he wants to draw a line between pre-war and post-war architecture. So people who know nothing about architecture but simply live in this country. Notice a very clear demarcation between the architecture of 1940 and before and the architecture of 1946 and after. In New York City, it's called pre-war. Famously, it's more expensive than a pre-war building. Why was there such a – there was a a sea change in architecture. Why after the war? Well, it was a kind of a convergence of a lot of things. First of all, you get the – you get all these mass-produced materials that are wonderfully – uh, kind of inexpensive and 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 versatile, like uh, uh, you know all this plate glass and yeah, all of these drywall plywood, yeah, silicon gaskets for holding the plate glass in, right? And uh, uh, you know these aluminum spans and and the aluminum sashes and uh, the pre the pre stressed concrete and you know the real dirty secret of modernism, uh, New York City style especially, is uh, you know. It starts out as a, a kind of a social program with all those uh, German Bauhauslers who move yes. over to America. Mies van der Walter Gropius. Yeah, all those guys come over. Yeah. But then they drop that, and it just becomes a fashion statement for corporate America for building gigantic glass boxes. And, you know, the catch is 
they're you know they're uh, you know they're they're pretty cheap and easy to put up, and and they don't require a whole lot of uh, really. Uh, um, elaborate craftsmanship. Right. You don't have these stone cutters. You right. Know, there are no gargoyles cutting out on the, the side uh, of the trefoils, building. Yeah, you know, exactly. for the Morgan Library or whatever you know classical building you're, you're building. He described there the the work of these archite- architects who came over, such as Mies van der Rohe and Walter Gropius, um, as a social as a social engineering program. Um, so that's explicitly getting into the, the the cultural Marxism thing and the idea that this architectural style is a deliberate program to uh, degrade people. I'm really bad with history, but, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that when countries go through golden ages or like sudden, sudden influxes of, of wealth and prosperity, um, they often create new art and architecture as a part of that. Uh, and they countries will like forge new identities for themselves and their new, you know, their the Italian Renaissance is really uh was like a right classic example of this, but I, I think that like post-war America was also an example of this. We kind of defined American identity by like suburbia and glass and steel cities, right? <laughs> right. So that I don't know. I, I could just shut up and say, um, no, there isn't an evil round table of people who are designing cities to make specifically you miserable, yeah. you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that building is going to fall on my head. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Something that really bothers me about listening to uh, to James Kunstler is that... Um, not all the time, but at certain times, he sounds a lot like Norm MacDonald, and it bums me out. I hadn't noticed, but I'm sure I'm going to notice now and be bummed out. And then, uh, Kunstler, he, he's he got some bold predictions for what some of his... Cause they're they're kind of carefully transitioning into talking more about energy here, um, and Kunstler's theories about the energy supply waning. Okay. Um And so this is getting into some of his predictions about what the future is going to look like. So anyway, that, you know, that's just a phase. But now we're going through a really fascinating um, uh, new phase where all of that stuff is now instantly obsolete overnight with COVID-19. You know, now you've got all of these giant skyscrapers that were the thing to do because they seemed like a good idea at the time. Also, by the way, realize you can maximize the amount of rentable space by just making the building higher and higher and higher. Exactly. You're on a hundred foot, you know, floor plate, yeah. hundred square foot floor plate. So you want to stack them up as high as you possibly can within the legal limits. And you get that many more rents and et cetera. But now after COVID, you've got all these buildings, you know, on Sixth Avenue that are and all over Manhattan that are running at 30% occupancy or left or less. And they, you know, they can't cover their taxes with that, with, with that, uh, uh, reduce revenue. They can't cover their maintenance. They can't cover the mortgages that they have on these buildings because a lot of these commercial skyscrapers are mortgaged. So uh, I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, that's really one of the ugliest things this country's well, ever done. Well, it has done. deep implications for the I know it does, that and, I, and you've thought about it. So t- what are those implications? So are we at the end of the glass box phase? We're more like at the end of the, the mega metroplex city uh, in America and probably probably in the world. Really? Uh, yeah, we've they've attained a scale that's no longer 
uh, it doesn't comport with the resource realities and the and the capital realities of the future. So we're living through the end of cities, Tyler. Cities are done. Yeah, because um, people hate cities. No one lives there. And at this point, it's worth mentioning on on his website, Kunstler has a predictions section um, where every year, like he makes predictions about what the year will will hold. I only read the one for twenty twenty. Um, I think it, I imagine it would be fun to go through more of them sometime. But just the one for twenty twenty. Uh, he predicted that the Democratic Party would split into two factions. He predicted that Hillary Clinton would would usurp Biden's position and run again. And he predicted that Donald Trump would win handily. So 0 for 3. He's doing great. Don't know how much stock I put in Kunstler's prediction game is what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then this is where what I was alluding to earlier, where I think where Tucker, where a lot of these ideas originate from in him is his dislike of the idea of having to live close to, to non-white people um, or people unlike himself. And this is where I think we start to get some clues to that. Now, one thing that happened during the COVID was a lot of people decided to work from home. Yes. And to do it by moving to suburbia. Yes. Not maybe not a, such a good choice. Because suburbia's days are numbered, too. We're not going to have the fossil fuel resources to keep on running that the way it was designed to run. And it's not really very easy to retrofit. Yes. So, you know, a lot of the destiny of suburbia is liable to be three things. Uh, salvage, ruins, and slums. It, it's hard to say how we're going to get to that point, but it's probably not going to take a whole a lot of time because so much of of the actual composition of suburbia is junk that is going to fall apart pretty easily if it's not so i mean if you were to eliminate single family zoning in westchester county new york for example mm-hmm. which is an archetypal suburb right many many of them um that would accelerate you know that would accelerate what, what you're describing well you're seeing all kinds of skirmishes around the central issue uh, today, uh, and I don't take those very seriously. Um, I think the bigger issue is this: is that you know how are we going to occupy the landscape in North America or in Western civilization going forward? Tucker, where his mind went immediately was the idea of getting rid of single-family zoning, which we've talked about a couple of times before, which is basically uh, a, a measure that would make housing more affordable, which is a good thing. Unless you're Tucker and don't want people to live near you. So then uh, that was the first kind of scent in the water that there might be a racial angle to this. Um, Here is where Kunstler makes that explicit. We are failing to construct a coherent consensus about what's happening to us so that we can make a plan or a set or sets of plans for what we're going to do in the future. And we have to reconstruct a coherent consensus. And one of the ways, one of the things that's obviously getting in the way is this unfortunate idea that we're this, this shibboleth that we introduced about, you know, 30, 40 years ago of multiculturalism. The idea that you could have all these competing cultures, you know, living happily uh, in one nation. Has that ever happened anywhere in history? Well, uh, it tends to not work out. 
you know, and it tends to lead to conflict and and uh, tends to lead to decay and, and decline. And that's exactly what it did in this country. There it is. And the, the concept of multiculturalism being a, a discordant force that degrades the fabric of society is not new to us on this show. No, um, but it. I, I, I did want to be able to connect that thread to this conversation they're having more broadly about architecture and, and housing design. And then Kunstler also really wants to focus on the idea of having like a cultural consensus we can all agree on about the way our culture should be. And this is where his mind goes next. You know, one of the interesting things to me was during the COVID year or two, um, we weren't going out much at night, and I kept on uh, veering over to the Turner Classic Movie Station watching all these 1930s movies. And what was so astounding to me was what a firm set of agreements Americans had about behavior, manners, and language. Yes. You know, <laughs> there was a shared, coherent consensus about, you know, how oh, you speak, how God. you behave. Uh, and, you know, what you're allowed to do and not allowed to and what's OK and what's not OK. What color your skin was. And of course, this is you know, this was a period in our history when we probably felt you know, we were leading into that period of the post World War II era where we re- imagined ourselves to be at the height of what the American, you know, supreme imperial moment was. Yes, of course. Man, we sure had a much stronger cultural consensus back when we completely ignored the opinions of women and black people. Yeah, Yeah, it's really interesting to me that he picked the 30s specifically because the 30s was when the Hays Code was in effect in Hollywood. And the Hays Code forbade things like uh, homosexuality or sexual impropriety, like second side of marriage couldn't be portrayed positively. Um, it forbade oh. miscegenation, just all, all of these like traditionalist pearl clutchy rules around around what movies could do in the 30s. And that's the era that he's like, man, back then there really was this great consensus about how you act, how you dressed, what your manners were, how you spoke. <sighs> and yeah. All, like all I can hear is like, man, I really want to go back to the time when everybody in movies was white and, and acted just like me. God, could you be any more obvious? Like, my God. Hi, everybody. Future Troy here. Well, I guess present Troy from me, but future compared to the Troy you've been hearing, and actually past Troy for you. So this is a bit of a paradox I've created. I, I, did, I did just want to put in, put in a quick spiritual correction here. Because um, when, when talking about the Hayes Code, I, I realized listening back that my wording seemed to imply that the Hayes Code outright forbid homosexuality in films, which is not correct. Um... The homosexuality was not uh, specifically referenced in the code. It, at the time, was understood to fall over the purview of sexual impropriety. So it was uh, uh, de-, de-, de facto discrimination rather than de jure discrimination. And also it's worth mentioning that the Hayes Code was uh, often subverted or outright not complied with, especially in the early part of the 30s. And so it's not like this was a monolith. But it's just kind of a good indicator of the, the, the cultural atmosphere that James Charles Kunstler is, is, is alluding to here when he, when he celebrates these movies from the 30s. So, uh, yeah, just wanted to make sure I dropped that clarification in. Um, and now let's get back to the episode. 
And then uh, here we get a preview to, to something we're going to end on, which is, uh, this might surprise you, but Kunstler has some thoughts about the Russia situation. Oh, does he? In your telling, and I think history affirms your description, energy is the very center of your economy. It's the primary resource. Thank you. It's the primary resource. So your energy policy is not some ancillary question. It's the central question. No. And it's an existential question, and we just don't want to look at it. We're avoiding it. It's avoidance behavior. Instead, you know, we're talking, you know, we're putting all our energy into, uh, you know, gender pronouns. Yeah, tearing down Robert E. Lee statues. You know, which it just shows what an unserious people we've become. I, I wonder, though, is, is that an, a, a part of American culture, or is it just a feature of human nature that you can't actually face the diagnosis? Well, I think that probably, there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. That, you know, cultures that are in trouble with big existential problems have a, they veer very easily into deflecting into other, you know, useless and stupid and pointless activities. So, sure. And, and we notice that, you know, this is going on all over the world. Like, you know, right now, you know, over in Europe, they are driving themselves crazy with these new kind of, uh, you know, uh, fascist uh, lockdowns and vaccine mandates and things that you haven't seen since the Gestapo was running around yeah. in Europe, you know? And yet they are faced with much more dire problems for how they're going to heat European homes this winter. I know. And they're messing around with these stupid, you know, uh, uh, rules and laws that are going to disrupt people's lives when they should be, they should be talking to the Russians of making some kind of a, a sensible deal with how they're going to live together uh, you know, and how they're going to uh, trade for the things well, they, they need. They could shut down gas to Western Europe. I mean, that absolutely. Would... But instead, Europe is preoccupied with this nonsense. So, yeah, man, we, we're all worried about this dumb COVID stuff. We should be trying to make a sensible deal with Russia. Yeah, make a sensible deal with the guy who says your land belongs to me. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to go swimmingly. Yeah. And, uh, uh, okay. And I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to present that here because we're going to circle back to it in just a minute. Um, but to, to wrap up on this conversation, Tucker asks Kunstler, um, like what advice he would give to like a 30 year old, a 30 year old trying to figure out where to live in this country. 20 years from now, if you were a 30-year-old man, where would you think about living? Well, I might just move to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yes, what a wonderful town that is. It is. I've been there. You know, yeah. And there are a lot of them up there. Stay the fuck out of my town. <laughs> <laughs> Stay the fuck oh. away from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tucker, so is it a real place or is it not a real place? Shoes. You can't live yeah. in a fake place. And I really hope it exists by then. I'm sure it would be nice <laughs> to move there. <laughs> oh, that's why it's so wonderful. It's because it's imaginary. That's why they're so mad. Yeah, I, I just thought that would be fun for us. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, here's, here's how Tucker closes this interview. If the last 55 minutes haven't made the case for the thinking of James Howard Kunstler, we give up. 
He's a man who really deserves to be read by everyone. I appreciate your coming on today and spending all this time with us. Well, I'm very flattered. and Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here and to meet you in person. It really has. Thank you. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. James Howard, counselor, yoga master, in addition to everything else. <laughs> It's really impressive how eloquently Tucker can speak with a dick in his mouth. (laughs) Um, Yes. So then uh, after listening to this interview, I decided to go check out James Howard Kunstler's website because Tucker seems to really like his work. So I wanted to see what was up there. Um, And uh, on his blog, Clusterfuck Nation, Kunstler has been writing a lot recently about Russia, and he does not describe what's going on right now as a war, but rather as an operation by Russia to solve the problem of Ukraine. And to give an example of how he talks about this, here's a line from his March 14th post, quote, and he's talking about how uh, NATO, a lot of NATO nations don't actually want to be involved in this fight, Um, quote, The member nations of NATO have even less desire to join the battle and are doing a poor job pretending they oppose Russia's disagreeable but necessary work there. Um, I don't think that's what NATO said about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Disagreeable but necessary work. Jesus Christ. Um, So then I read a little bit further. Uh, In his March 14th blog post titled Playing Dumb, Kunstler writes about what he believes to be the real reason the U.S. is so concerned about the fate of Ukraine. I'll read an excerpt now and see if you can put the pieces of this together. It must be obvious by now that the biggest complainers about misinformation in the USA are the biggest spreaders of it. When you hear baseless and conspiracy theory, do you not automatically now sense the rot of propaganda working through the the delicate tissues of reality? Eventually, the stench of PSYOP is so sharp that that it even wakes up the walking dead. Would our country be disappointed if Russia actually solved the problem of Ukraine? You have every reason to think so. For one thing, we would be stuck having to face our own problems, especially the ones caused by lying to ourselves, such as the nearly unthinkably obscene, the nearly unthinkable obscenity of having a possibly poisoned majority of the U.S. population with mRNA vaccines, in scare quotes, and killed hundreds of thousands of COVID-19 patients by withholding known effective treatments. What would you suppose we might do about that? Hold people accountable? The scale of this disaster is so enormous that the country can't begin to process it. And it's not just us, it's all of Western Civ, which is more or less interchangeable with NATO, now the chosen instrument of distraction. Do any of these member nations have the stomach to face their own gross institutional failures? Apparently not yet. Even in the face of massive emerging data that the vaccines, quotes, are a bust and have an, are a bust and have additionally injured and killed many people, the CDC still urges Americans to vax up and boost up. So, by the way, does the allegedly former president Barack Obama, who tested positive for the virus over the weekend, despite He's not being- allegedly a former <laughs> president, I'm so, like he just is a former president. Allegedly. I know there's Um, a lot here, but like, I just, I can't. Uh, Barack Obama, who tested positive for the virus over the weekend, despite being vaxxed to the max, who will tell them to stop digging the hole they're in before they dig all the way to China? It's only a matter of time before the swindled public flips and realizes that it has been subject to mass murder by bureaucrats, politicians, doctors, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies, 
and purveyors of the news. They're all in this up to their necks, as are their corresponding officials in France, Germany, the UK, etc. They're trying to sweep this enormous lump of depravity under the rug, hoping that the masses of citizens will just leave the room. Threatened by losing the war against its own citizens, the U.S. government now seeks a wider kinetic war over its would-be client state, Ukraine. The stakes must be pretty high for, quote, Joe Biden and company to risk starting World War III. Why else inflame a dangerous situation by setting more weapons there? I'll tell you why. To prolong Russia's operations to neutralize Ukraine so it won't cause further trouble for them or anybody else in the world. The longer the U.S. bad thing? (laughs) The longer the U.S. can keep that going, the longer we can put off the various reckonings at home. So didn't he just say the two opposite things? Uh, how so? Uh, maybe I misheard. It, I, sending weapons to Ukraine to put a stop to it, but then also prolong it. Or did I did I mishear you? So uh, so we're sending weapons to Ukraine to prolong the war by enabling them to resist Russia longer. Um, okay, okay, okay. Sorry. We want to prolong Russia's operations to neutralize Ukraine so that it won't cause further trouble for them or anybody else in the world. Okay. So he's he's like comically pro-Russia in this. <laughs> like he's yeah. like it's necessary that they're stopping Ukraine so they don't cause trouble for the world. Like what trouble? <laughs> <sighs> um yeah. Kunstler ends the piece this way. The best outcome will be will be the disassembly of Ukraine into an eastern Russian zone, perhaps annexed into Russia, and a rump western Ukraine state that will be as quiet and inoffensive as Moldova and Slovakia next door. It would be best for everyone, and especially the third world, if the Russian operation is concluded as quickly as possible with a structured peace settlement, leaving a chance to get a Ukrainian grain crop planted because otherwise a lot of innocent people will go hungry. Is the, U- is the USA interested in peace settlement, or do we want to drive events further toward tragedy and our own national suicide? Ugh. And I, 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 I cut out excerpts from a couple other blog posts too. I'm not going to read them because this episode has run a bit longer than I expected. <laughs> um, but uh, they're all essentially in the same vein that like, it's it's a good thing that Russia ha- is trying to take over Ukraine, and they should. And the best outcome will be for Ukraine to no, to no longer exist. Um, uh, and then coupled okay. with, coupled with that is the narrative that the U.S. wants us to be fixated on this war to distract us from the fact that the vaccines have uh, injured and killed many millions of people. Uh huh. Um, Citation needed. And I just want. <laughs> I just want to say, because Tucker at a certain point says uh, he, he's talking about how Kunstler is like such a such a smart guy and should be read by everybody. Yeah. So if Tucker believes that the vaccine is designed to kill a bunch of people, then his, his worldview is so goddamn inconsistent because that would mean that the elite powers that be are trying to import in all these people from uh, other places in the world. To non-white places. Yep. To to supplant the white majority in the United States and create a more subservient electorate. Yes. At the same time, he's done segments about how white people 
are being deprioritized from getting the vaccine and life-saving medical treatment and how like he played that clip of the infowars host harrison smith um that that he cut short so it it was edited to look like he was being refused service because he was white at a vaccine clinic yeah um and so if the idea is that they're trying to to change the demographics of the country but also they're focused on administering the vaccine primarily to non-white people a vaccine which causes mass death what exactly is the logic to that yeah see Troy, the mistake you're making is trying to prescribe internal logic to a conservative's worldview which is a losing game fair <laughs> and then the, probably the, the more relevant point for where we are right now is that tucker made it very clear he reads this guy's blog and thinks it is good information and so tell- some percentage of his audience is gonna go read this now and yes go, yeah good ideas yeah and it's like that 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 might tell us some things some things about some of that early Russia coverage we saw on Tucker's show. Yeah, yeah. So then to wrap things up today, Tyler, I did want to to give you a, a very brief tour of Kunstler's website. Okay, okay. Because this is <laughs> this delighted me to know it. The on the header, uh, there's his name, James Howard Kunstler beside a picture of a man sitting on the hood of a car that is being towed by a horse. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He has his Clusterfuck Nation blog. That's a big segment. He's also got the eyesore of the month he talked about, where he uh, every month posts some architectural monstrosity he dislikes. Then there's a section dedicated to his paintings. Because Kunstler is a painter and updates the site regularly with his paintings, which is nice. Okay. Um, he also has a section called My Garden, where he regularly posts pictures and updates about his uh, his garden and has since 2012. Okay. He's got a section for his, his schedule, the speaking tours. So I went and clicked on that. Uh, currently nothing on the schedule. okay um he's got a section dedicated to a play that he wrote uh called the big slide by james howard kunstler is a three-act play quote set in the autumn of an unspecified near year future at an adirondack great camp where three generations of the freeman family have taken refuge from new york and boston during a severe national political maelstrom maelstrom we are never fully apprised of the exact nature of this event, but it appears to involve a coup d'etat in the White House and an uprising of local militias all over the nation. The, the estate of the big slide is isolated from these events, but news dribbles in by radio. The electricity is stopped working and law enforcement seems to have been suspended, making it dangerous to travel even to the nearest town for food and necessities. The 13 members of the family, ranging from the dying patriarch to his grown children and their spouses, to the two teenage step-siblings, Raven and Zach struggle to work out how they will organize themselves for survival in the months ahead against a background of old and deep personal grievances with each other. So that's the synopsis. And then there's a section where you can purchase the performance rights. Um, so if you want to buy the Big Slide play script, it's available for purchase as an ebook for $2.99. Okay. 
it, what, what I'm saying is, Wokeristas, <laughs> I, I think we should put on this goddamn play. <laughs> oh, no. Um, he's then got his forecast section where he makes predictions, uh, a section for his books. And then there is a section titled Movie Reviews. He, he has several movie reviews posted here. So what I'd like to do, Tyler, to end this episode, um, I'd like to throw out some movie titles. And I want you to tell me, based on what you know about James Howard Kunstler, whether he liked or disliked the movie. Okay, I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay. I uh, did not like. Kunstler writes, they were hyping the heck out of this movie, and I had high hopes. But it turned out to be a pretty ghastly affair. McDormand plays the mother of a teen rape and murder victim who goes, to, who goes kind of sociopathic when the lazy-ass local police fail to find the perp and then give up on the case. All the characters are complex to a fault, doing things that unsuspend your disbelief. Woody has done this tragic noble turn a half dozen times already. McDormand seems, seems intended to represent 100,000 years of pent-up female homo sapiens rage. A, po- a popular prog fashion statement what? these days. <laughs> that does a disservice to the... What do re- these words mean? That does a disservice to the reality of male-female relations. oh my god okay i saw that movie there were no complex characters in that movie i'm just gonna say it like but but did you feel it did a disservice to male female relations (laughs) (laughs) wait how how could it have improved like do are men and women not allowed to talk to each other without fucking at some point in the movie is that is yeah, that the I, criteria? Yeah, like cards on the table, I have not seen the movie, so I can't venture to guess what he means. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, Wind River. Wind River. Um, sounds country and folksy, so maybe he likes it. Thoughtful and gritty look at Indian re- reservation life in Wyoming these days, but with dramatic logic problems toward the end. Too many guns and too many bodies. Jeremy Renner is a very reassuring presence as a, wild, as a wildlife warden with family problems who manages his manners and behavior admirably. Olsen's role has moments of unreality in some of the action sequences. Not her fault, but the tiresome need for Hollywood to demonstrate that women can do everything men can do. The mood is impressively grim throughout. Okay, so I, I, I'm one and one. One hit, one miss. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, he hates that shit. Absolutely. No way. Nailed it again. Uh, yet, <laughs> <laughs> yet another exercise in techno-narcissistic sci-fi. <laughs> oh. The most telling obvi- other people that they're too narcissistic. The most Imagine. obvious annoyance is the depiction of a future society in which everybody goes about in flying cars. America can't help projecting its car craziness eternally into the future. Where does the energy come from to run all that snazzy high tech in the background? (laughs) 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 And what do all those insect-like denizens and street people do to support their Robin habit? The movie has no no internal logic and the pace is sludgy. It's not redeemed by Gosling's hangdog charisma. I walked out at the two-hour mark. So you must have seen most of the movie then. Manchester by the Sea. Um, I think that 
that movie has human emotions in it to which uh Kunstler cannot relate and so he's not a fan uh first miss he did like this one a deeply moving portrait of a new england working class family disintegration on the brink of trumptopia okay really and oh man if only trump was president in this movie everyone would have been saved and then i don't think you would have seen any of the rest any of these other ones so to, to the last one we'll do la la land um i i don't get the sense that this guy's a fan of musicals um yeah i'll i'm just gonna go with my gut i don't i don't think he liked it okay well a genuinely charming sounds like (laughs) a genuinely charming and smart contemporary love story with a really good score by young justin herwitz critics have compared it to singing in the rain which it resembles only slightly i actually had a look on disc at francis coppola's 1982 musical one from the heart, which La La Land resembles more. Both are pastel-colored pistaches of movie musical conventions, set in the palm-treed urban west. But the earlier movie was a spectacular flop and brought down Coppola's fledging zoetrope studios. The difference is largely better casting. In La La Land, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone both irradiate intelligence, tipping off the audience that whoever, whatever else happens, they will not end up as losers. Okay. All right, so I, I don't quite have a bead on this guy's uh, on this guy's movie tastes. I mean, I, I think you got a passing grade. Yeah, so I, I I'm gonna take keep... my C by technicality. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna check out a bit of his podcast and maybe read through some more Clusterfuck Nation. Uh, James Howard Kunstler might be somebody we re- we revisit in the future. All right. Um, another thread I'm interested in more is is Tucker's uh, Kaczynskiism. So if any if anything else comes up kind of in that vein, we might we might revisit it then. But yeah, as of right now, that is all I got. All right. We did it. Go team. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler, what's our sworn enemy this week? Um, okay, so I like to try to pick enemies that we can all uh collectively rally against, right? But um this one's personal. I want everyone. Uh, who in our audience who has connections to the orgy Martians to tell them that I want an invite and I want everyone to attack the orgy Martians on Twitter until they come on my podcast. <laughs> so this is a conditional enemy. Like they can cease to be an enemy if they invite us. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> we will be back next week. In the meantime, we do have ourselves a website. It's tuckeredoutpod.com. We're on Twitter at tuckeredoutpod. You can join the Facebook group, Wokaristas. You can email the show, uh, tuckeredoutpod at gmail.com. And uh, if, if you want to give us money, you can find us at the Money Places. Specifically Patreon. And, uh, and we have a PayPal link as well for one-time donations. We will be back with more content for you. Uh, in the meantime... Do not read Clusterfuck Nation. I will do it for you. (laughs) Or do, honestly. Like, it might be a fun time. (laughs) (laughs) Try to enjoy it. Based on his movie reviews. (laughs) I Um, mean, do do look at his My Garden section. It's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you to all of our patrons.
Um, and and thank you again, much. Pendleton Ward, for the logo. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you so much. It's it's lovely. It's great. There are a couple of there are a couple of different variations you sent me actually, so I might play with different ones as for over the next couple of weeks. Fine with um, me. They're all very cute and charming. I yeah. love them. Yeah. Uh, and thank you again, Alyssa, for some of the resources used in this episode. Um, and thank you, everybody who listens to us every week. And uh, have a great life. Thanks again for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>